Channel 5 presents Movies Till Dawn for your late-night entertainment. Tonight, Heaven Can Wait. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. We are back, broadcasting from the land of pandemia, I'm sorry to say. Uh, let's drop that topic immediately. Uh... Let's start instead by discussing the date, June 30th. It's a nice day, June 30th. It's, it's, uh, the summer's just getting underway. The 4th of July's around the corner. Uh, there are a lot of interesting people in the performing arts born on, on June 30th. Um, among them, Susan Hayward, great actress. Lena Horne, great singer. Mike Tyson, pretty good dancer. Uh, John Gay, who wrote The Beggar's Opera. Raymond DeFolita, I'm born on June 30th. Uh, and there's another filmmaker born on June 30th, a filmmaker who I've admired since long before I knew his birthday was June 30th. He's the director, Anthony Mann, and he's the subject of this segment of Movies Till Dawn. Anthony Mann was one of the great mid-century filmmakers. Uh, he worked roughly from the early 40s to the mid-1960s. Uh, and his career, it, it really sort of followed the, the curve of the Hollywood uh, um, filmmaking at the time. He started doing very low-budget work and moved into slightly larger-budget B-movies, uh, great film noirs like Railroaded and T-Men. Uh, he then moved into Westerns in the early 50s. And the interesting thing about that is the business changed uh, in 1950 exactly. That's when... Lou Wasserman, the head of uh, MCA, uh, decided that the studios had it all wrong. It really should be the actors calling the shots as to what movies they made because they were the ones that people cared about going to see. And one of the early actors who benefited from this was James Stewart. And James Stewart wanted a, an image makeover. He wanted to be a Western star. And he decided to hire Anthony Mann to direct what was a breakout film for both of them, Winchester 73, one of the greatest Westerns ever made. I feel uh, confident in saying that without hyperbole. Uh, and they worked together so well that they made a whole bunch of other Westerns that are all terrific. Bend of the River, uh, Naked Spur, Man from Laramie, uh, the Glenn Miller story, which is not a Western, obviously. Uh, but Mann also made many other movies in the 1950s for, for the studios. Uh, Man of the West with Gary Cooper is, is a terrific film, and also uh, God's Little Acre, um, which is a lot of fun. And then as television starts to dominate filmmaking uh, and, and, and kind of takes a lot of the audience, Hollywood decides that movies need to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the epics start, Ben-Hur being really the kind of the signature late 50s epic from which a lot of other things sprang. And that's where Anthony Mann went next. Uh, he was actually the original director of Spartacus, but something happened, which you'll hear about, uh, between him and Kirk Douglas. But he then went to Spain, and he made two of the great epics of that era, El Cid starring Charlton Heston and uh, Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that Anthony Mann died when I was very little, so I didn't get to interview him, but I did get to meet and interview 
his daughter, Nina Mann. And Nina is an actress, and she's a wonderful person and a, a good storyteller. And we met, it was sort of funny, my, my um, dear friend and collaborator, Jonathan Fernandez, I, for some reason, he, we were talking about my favorite filmmakers, and I mentioned Anthony Mann, and he said, oh, I know her daughter. And uh, her, uh, I, I know his granddaughter, and in other words, uh, he, well, anyway. Nina Mann is the mother of Jonathan's friend, and uh, he introduced me to Nina, and I said, can I please have a conversation with you about your father? And she said, sure. And we had a great time, and that's what you're going to hear. You're also going to hear Anthony Mann himself uh, speaking. I have some, uh, some sound bites that come from an interview that he gave in 1967, uh, just shortly before his untimely passing. He, he died while making his last film, A Dandy in Aspic, and uh, the star, Lawrence Harvey, had to finish it. Uh, but he did give this interview. There's not a lot uh, of interview material with Anthony Mann. He, he, uh, I think he felt that his actions spoke louder than words, which is a theme he uh, comes back to a lot in this interview. It was done for an English TV show called The Movies, and they really put their heads together on that, didn't they? The movies. Anyway, I'm glad they did it because uh, we do have sound and picture of the man himself. The entire interview is available on YouTube. I just want to go back to the, the June 30 birthday thing one more time. I, I don't know why it, it makes me feel like Anthony Mann is sort of a blood brother director to me. Uh, it's silly, I know. Uh, and the thing is, though, that on every shoot at some point, you, you know, you, you get really tired and, and the director is kind of the, the victim of a lot of questions all the time. And, I, you know, you get confused, you get dazed, you, you're exhausted. And when that happens to me, I close my eyes and I say, what would Anthony Mann do right now? Because he's my brother uh, as a June 30th guy. What would Anthony Mann do? And he, he's remained mute. He doesn't answer me. Uh, but I somehow feel better asking myself that question and I get back to work. Anyway, let's go to Malibu, California in January of 2020, pre-pandemia. We're sitting in a large, lovely room with a big plate glass window overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's very cool. And uh, let's hear our conversation with Nina Mann, daughter of Anthony Mann. It's a medium which communicates to more people than any other medium in the world in sense of immediacy. It's marvelous to see, for instance, El Cid in India. I mean, they just adored it. They beat on the ground like mad, you know? It was wonderful because they, it, it, at least it got to them, even though they couldn't understand a word, what was going on. And of course, this is really the medium because it's a sight medium. And this is the one thing which I, if I have anything, I would say is, is part of the, the quality that I have, and that is that I believe that everything should be, should be photographed. It should be a picture. It should be an action. And this is what pictures are. And this is, uh, Shakespeare used beautiful words and magnificent uh, descriptions. I could uh, have, a, have a, a shot of the desert and a, a twister going down the desert just before King Lear rides across it, before he gets involved in the hurricane. And the hurricane can be something that's, fr 
It's all there. I don't have to describe it. Because in one shot, I can tell it. One of the things I remember from hearing from someone somewhere along the line was that my father had said um, that all the scripts that he was getting in those early days were lousy. That was a very 50s or 40s word. <laughs> they were lousy. And he'd fix it in the shooting. So he was always trying to make what he got better. Uh, from the visual point of view is my understanding, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think also they had very few sets and they created atmosphere with angles and lighting. And, you know, you, I remember uh, he did an interview once where he talked about what was exciting about what you could do with film is that you could have um, the see the guillotine come down and hear the head drop in the box in the bucket, but not see it oh, nice. exactly. And he also, apropos of that, felt that our audience imagination was far more terrifying than seeing it actually happen. Mm -hmm. You know, to see the head lopped off and blood come spurting out was not as scary as your creation in your mind of how that would feel, look, sound. And if you can make it all for the audience see as real and as truthful, then you, you don't have to say things. If you ever asked anybody in an audience what an actor said or an actress said, they would never know. But what they have done, or some piece of business, or some moment, they can tell you vividly because they've seen it. I did remember seeing him sitting with scripts and drawing, you know, there's the dialogue side and drawing on the blank page on the other side. Um, what I think were the staging, but I don't know for sure. He, he clearly worked out what he was thinking on the other side of the page of the, of the scripts that he got. Yeah. And um, there was a lot of input. There was a lot of visual, of what I think he was thinking that he would record on the other side. So, so but it sounds then, because I'm always interested, look, there's really two ways you can do this. You can right. either bring the actors in first, see what they... Sure. feel comfortable doing and plan your shots or there's the and I think it's maybe already maybe an older school way of doing it which is sit there and figure out exactly where to tell them they're going to stand right. and plan all of your shots it sounds like he was more of that school you know I honestly don't know the answer to that I would suspect he did both yeah you know I would suspect he came in with his you know ideas but he seems to be I think he respected the actors that he respected were the ones that were prepared. The reason why he liked Jimmy Stewart is he said there's nothing he wouldn't do. He would ask him to do whatever horrible things, you know, being dragged through the sand and doing what. There was nothing he would refuse to do. On the other end of it, he was not a big fan of Charlton Heston. He said that what Heston did brilliantly was wear costumes. 
you know, he could he would really carry it off. Right. And uh, but the story that kind of goes along with that—that's an example of that. It's apparently in the uh, the the scene where uh, El Cid consummates his relationship with Shimane. Uh, and, um, you know, it's the first time they've, you know, finally fulfilled them themselves. And the night before the shoot, um, Heston called my father and he seemed very worried. And he said, during this scene, where's my horse? <laughs> and so, you know, now the horse is a pretty big figure in the film. <laughs> But it it was indicative of kind of, you know, it, it just, he didn't have great uh, um, positive feelings towards Heston. Yeah. Also, he didn't like the way uh, Heston uh, treated his young son who was there at the time. Right. And Heston clearly didn't like him because uh, when they, when Scorsese did a remastering of El Cid, sure. and I, I went and... Um, I introduced myself to Sophia, who couldn't have been more gracious and wanted to know all about Anna, not knowing that Anna wasn't my mother, but his third wife, um, and was just lovely. And then I introduced myself to Heston, and he said, I never could understand what made that angry little man tick. Funny. This, yeah. <laughs> this to the daughter. Right. I mean, why would you say that? Well, first of all, he doesn't appear to be a little man. <laughs> Yeah, was, yeah. I, well, know. he. I think he was five seven or. Was he? Was he yeah. angry though? Was I he a tough guy? Was he hard I, on the I, set? I, I, you know, I. I think he was both supportive, and tough, and I do know that you know he yelled a lot, yeah, but how much of each, and whether it was if you showed up with the goods, there's no reason to yell at you, right? But if you're not. Sounds like he was a disciplinarian. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I what was the so. first set of his that you remember going to? Um, I, I was so glad for these <laughs> because it helped. Um, I was remembering um, it was um, the, the Glenn Miller story and June Allison. They were putting um, a glycerin teardrop on her face. And I just, you know, that was just curious to me at the time and uh, so that was the first that I remember and then there was a time when he was doing either Bend of the River or The Naked Spur, I'm not sure which, um, but he, uh, but we went on location for that and uh, some of the childhood things that I remembered was that uh, the daughter of the producer was there too, and she and my sister got in an argument at who was more important, the director or the producer. <laughs> you know, that's whatever. Who, who won? Um, I I don't know that they that they won. I think my sister felt that you know, uh, obviously. Well, I can tell you who the director of the movie is, but I can't tell you who the producer is. There so you that's go. Right. There you go. I've actually done all my films practically. If I possibly can, I do them all on location. You can't always, but. Uh, because there's a reality, there's a great, great sense of reality. Because actors don't, they, 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 they're not bothered by the silence of a studio and the, and the scenery and so forth. They're involved because they have to run up a flight of stairs or they have to walk down the street and the wind is blowing or the rain is raining or whatever is happening, 
they become more alive and more real because they are they're with the elements. They're, they're battling the elements. And if, for instance, Westerns, of course, this is the great thing about Westerns because you do all the picture on location. And if an actor has to run up a hill, he has to pant. Now, in the studio, it's very difficult for an actor to pant properly. You know, he fakes it, but it doesn't, it's never real. It's never, his blood doesn't rush to his head. And therefore, he's, um, he's less uh, active. He's, he's, he's less vibrant. And all these things help in creating a film. How long were you on that location? Um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I was like nine, I believe. And it, well, that was an interesting thing that came up for me in, in going over your questions, was my experience of my father from, you know, zero to 12, and then it was very different from my experience of him from 12 uh, to 24, because that was post-divorce. And my feeling that he left me and my mother and my sister, only she, basically my sister ended up living with him. Um, so my, my daddy feelings shifted, you know. I remember as a little girl, if he would, was coming home from work, um, running and jumping into his arms and feeling, you know, his rough uh, beard, you know, uh, day old beard against my face. And he would carry me on his shoulders and, you know, I would touch the ceiling and then discover that it was dirty and think, oh, my God, mommy's going to be mad, <laughs> you know. Um, so, and he, I, when I was about nine and a half, I had gotten a diary and I tried to write in it every day and I couldn't. And then he would help me and write in it for me and said some very sweet things, you know, about my darling daughter. And, you know, so I... I remember clearly loving him, but after the divorce, I, f I, I, I didn't know how to be with him, mm -hmm. and I was uncomfortable with him, and I, uh, and I just felt badly all the time. Felt, you know, I just didn't know how to be with him, and and it's the part that that is sad for me is that later on, you know trying to become an actress myself, et cetera, I, there's so many questions I would have liked to ask him. You know, what was it like to work, you know, with all of these various great actors that he worked with? You know, how was that? But I do know that um, he was interviewing for um, a very close friend of his, Gene Black, uh, that he, uh, and he directed one of her plays on Broadway, and he was auditioning on her recommendation a young actor. And for some reason, I was there. I wasn't there for the audition, but I was, you know, around. And when it finished, I, you know, I said, "Well, what did you think?" And he said, "Basically, all you have to do is tell the truth." To seven people, this gun was a magnet, a treasure, a weapon that promised life and dealt out death. For this saga of the West, Universal International has assembled a matchless cast, James Stewart, whose personal feud led to one of the grimmest manhunts ever filmed. What was his partnership with James Stewart about? What was their relationship like and how did they wind up pairing and making so many films together. Well, I think 
as I said, that they knew each other from each of their youth. Uh, and I think, um, I'm not sure how Winchester 73 came about, but I either I've read this or um, it was a real change for Jimmy in so far as he'd been mostly known for light comedy. And this was really a, a, a change for him which furthered his career. You know, he was not going to be sort of tossed aside. And their relationship, I think, was um, first a, a working relationship. I know somehow I got connected with drawing pictures for Jimmy and giving and my mother would give them to him and then he would draw pictures and give them back to me unfortunately I don't have any of them but we had that kind of exchange I think like my father said there's nothing you could ask him to do that he wouldn't do so he admired him and admired being able to you know say go for it you know do this um this again is an impression that Jimmy was not terribly generous financially. And I think he was sort of famous for that. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't one know that. One of the that. great Hollywood cheapskates. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I think my father, um, you know, kind of uh, resented that because they had done so much together. Now, for the first time, the Air Force throws open its guarded gates to reveal the amazing story of America's top secret striking force. Its earth-shaking power ready for defense at a moment in history when the world trembles in the shadow of the H-bomb. Every day in Saks of War, Colonel, pressure's on all the time and General Hawks is breathing down your neck. We never know when the other fellow may start something, so we've got to be combat ready 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Only VistaVision could encompass the vast range of strategic air command. High as the stratosphere, wide as the world. The great story of our times with the stars to match its stature. Jimmy Stewart and June Allison, the team you loved in the Glenn Miller story and the Stratton story. The next one, I think, was Strategic Air Command, and I think that was because Jimmy wanted to do that, because Jimmy had been a pilot, uh, you know, in the war, and he wanted to, I guess, celebrate that or whatever. I do remember my father somewhere getting the comment that shooting against the sky was very difficult, because you weren't, you didn't have anything to track you know, and mm -hmm. that that was that was a challenge, as was the same same kind of challenge. Um, um, Heroes of Telemark, because it was all snow, and how difficult it was to get a sense of urgency. You know, with that kind of a background. A lot of you folks have read this story, the man from Laramie and the Saturday Evening Post. Well, we made a picture about it out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And here are some scenes from The Man from Laramie. Man from Laramie, based on one of the most powerful adventure stories ever to appear in the Saturday Evening Post. Read by millions, now brought to the screen by the star, James Stewart, the director, Anthony Mann, the producer, William Getz, who gave you the Glenn Miller story, Winchester 73, End of the River, and many more. I think the falling out came, and I don't know the why, but apparently, 
Jimmy wanted to do this other Western and my father didn't like it or didn't want to do it and he didn't and then when Jimmy did it it was not it was pretty much a disaster so he held that against my father uh, is my impression mm. you know I don't I don't honestly know it sounds like you grew up knew, knowing Stuart was he close within your family well, too? It, uh, no it was just that uh, you know I would see him from time to time and um and, it, and it's interesting to me, though, that you mentioned him having an issue with how Charlton Heston treated his son. What? With, I'm not trying to dish or no, anything, no, but no, like, no. what was it that bothered your father? Because again, I'm, I keep going back to his I think childhood, was just, which was so so complicated right. and sad. It sounds right, like. Right. Was it something to do with that? Do you think? Oh, may very. That's a good good connection. It may very well have been. Um, I just think he just felt that he. Mistreated his son, and I somehow I I learned much later in life his son grew up and was gay, and maybe Heston you know sensed that and was trying to make a man of him or something. I don't know. Trying to teach him how to use all those guns. Yes, right. (laughs) Yeah. Your father was raised in a very peculiar and interesting sounding environment. It was sort of a Theosophical society. I think it was called Loma Land. Can you tell me about that a little? Loma Land was um, the Theosophical Society, as my understanding, was uh, an amalgam of the basic tenets of all the great religions of the world. And his mother and father moved there, and he was born there. This is San Diego. This is San Diego, right. Um, This is Point Loma in San Diego. He, um, it was a community that was totally self-sufficient. They grew their own food. They, um, uh, they went to bed at sundown. They got up at sunrise. My father had never seen money until he left at age 13. Uh, he, it was a very insular kind of group. However, one of the things that they did, which I think was his savior, kind of like Ari, is that he, um, they put, they built this, the first open air Greek theater there. And uh, they put on all the, um, the Greek uh, classics and Shakespeare. And he, at five or six, played Puck in, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. And there, uh, at one point, I was, you know, exposed to seeing some of the images from Loma Land. And you can see this whole long long line of centurions standing off stage. And you think, follow the Roman Empire. I mean, you just, you know, you put those things together. So... I think from early on, theater for him was inspiration. You know, uh, the bad news about uh, his upbringing was at three, his father became very ill. And so his mother thought if she took his father back to Austria, that might help. And they left him there from age three until 13. Alone in Loma Land. Yeah. 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 Basically, Loma Land, apparently, according to what I read, is that um, 
they kept the children separate from the parents anyway, but he happened to be left in the hands of a really, you know, unfortunate Scott schoolmaster who, when my father would be acting out, would pick him up by his ankles and dunk his head in a pail of water until he knocked it over. You know, so the water thing is... And he, and he carried that with him for the yeah. rest of your life. He, yeah. didn't want, he didn't like water. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was interesting to me when I saw, and, and why I don't know why I, I favor um, um, the Furies, but in the Furies, there's a moment when Barbara Stanwyck is acting out, and Wendell Corey grabs her by the scruff of the neck and dunks her head into a bowl of water. Oh. Now... According to Loma Land, that was their way of getting the children's attention when they were acting out, you know. But um, to traumatize them for life, yes, basically. Right, yeah. right. What was his escape, or what was his leaving? His mother, life? his 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 aunt came to visit him, and sensed that there was something really off there, and uh, you know said to his mother, "You've got to come and get this kid." You know, and then she came and picked him up and took him uh, to uh, where she was living. The father had died by then, uh, living in New Jersey. And it must have been overwhelming because here he'd been in this very closed, you know, situation in terms of how you live. And then you're in a, in a completely different world and going to school, it must have been incredibly uncomfortable. And he only uh, agreed to go to school for, I guess, two years and then refused to and, and was, you know, worked as a shoe salesman in Bamberger's basement and taking uh, shoes, uh, delivering them to New York, but getting it all done quickly so he could go and get involved in whatever theater experience he could, you know, trying to get a job, you know, as a stage manager or, you know, whatever. Having been in the theater, having directed in the theater, having been stage manager for some of the great directors like Jed Harris and Ruben Mamoulian and Chester Erskine and Winter Baines and so forth. And uh, then gradually, uh, then I was an actor for a while and uh, at the neighborhood playhouse. And we played plays like the Dibbuk, Little Clay Cart, things like that. And gradually, um, I learned enough about, at least I was learning about uh, uh, acting and about uh, staging. And then I staged my own plays like Thunder on the Left of Christopher Morley's on Broadway and so forth. And then gradually, um, David Selznick actually gave me my first glimpse of the picture business in the sense that uh, he allowed me to make tests for him for, with all the great actors. I made tests for Gone with the Wind and for Tom Sawyer and for oh many films. And in this way, I was able to cut the films and so forth and so on. And gradually, I became uh, deeply interested in films. In this way, uh, with all different kind of scenes and so forth, and I used to cut them and send them out to the coast. And in this way, I, I learned enough to be able to, uh, so they finally sent me out to the coast. He comes here to California, right. and he's involved with Gone with the Wind. Right. He um, was uh, hired to do the screen text, uh, tests, uh, which, according to the interview that both of us saw, um, it, it taught him a lot about how to put together 
films as well as, you know, directing. And I think, you know, he was just always in California looking for any kind of work. And so when the, you know, uh, B films, noir came up, he was eager to do them in whatever way, you know, he could. Did he ever talk to you about his first directing uh, first couple of movies they're 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 very good and they're very cheap right yeah they're right. really low you know on yeah. the low end of the B scale is where right. it started exactly yeah. exactly no just to get them done and to get uh, paid and to get another job you know uh, that was what was driving him you mm. know I mean I think he, he loved what he did and, and clearly there was a challenge in making something that was lousy into something that was good yeah you know I've heard that he would go see a movie in a theater and then he'd sit and watch it again oh if he if he was I guess if he liked That's it he would he would want to see whatever sure they did. no that makes sense because we would go to the movies often and I do remember vividly seeing the red shoes and he was blown away by that. It was a wonderful, wonderful film, and I thought we we saw it a couple of times. You know, I remember going with him to see that, and it I don't. This is an impression that he didn't laud other films easily, but yeah, we we would go to the movies frequently. Yeah, it, it, it this he's he's coming now. A, a portrait of him is forming to me as a very very pragmatic. Individual, so I wonder if this question even makes sense. What? Did he have feelings that he expressed to you about which of his films he liked or disliked, that he was proudest of, or perhaps, to, or is this not the the kind of way that he looked at his work? I, I'm curious. I, I think the answer to that is whatever he was doing at the time was the thing that he cared most about, that he liked the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it was lousy, it was going to be great, you know. Uh, uh, and, and I don't know, you know, in that same interview that you and I have both seen, you know, when he talks about, well, I, you know, I killed more people in more different ways than anybody, you know. And I didn't sense that there was, that he was proud of it. I do think that... Um, he got the, the Silver Spurs, which is an award, for several of um, the Westerns that he did. And I think that pleased him, but it wasn't... And I think he always wanted an Academy Award, but I don't think it was what... I, I, I don't... Um, I'm not aware of his pride being in any other, anything else other than another line in that interview was that it was done and he had finished it and he had used, spent himself, you know. Mm. I think that was really a description of himself. I, I, I don't think I've ended any of my films with any kind of exaltation. Really more tired and he's done the job and thank heaven it is done. That sort of feeling. Tell me about your mom, if you would, and, sure, and their marriage. Sure, sure. Um, well, he definitely wanted to marry her, and her father didn't want uh, her to marry anybody in the theater. Right. You know, um, and uh, she was super bright, really well-read, very smart. Um, and I think their early relationship 
from what I glean, uh, was uh, was terrific. What happened, which is also hard for me to understand with my father, because most of his, so many of his films are psychologically oriented, you know, but they had one kind of life in um, in New York. And she was basically supporting him. She was working at R.H. Macy and the the head of the notions department, which, if you knew my mother, was great because she was always into everything being in its place. Um, but uh, he went out to California, and then uh, she would say that she remembered him always saying, was that the phone? Did the phone ring? Was that the phone? And what was hard for him in California, as opposed to New York, in New York, you walk the streets, you run into everybody you know, and you make connections and you get work. You know, here you had to wait until the phone rang and, you know, so. Um, but when she came here, they removed her thyroid, and I don't know why, but they didn't replace it with anything. So she went through extreme depression and I don't think my father understood how to deal with that and wasn't able to deal with it. And, um, you know, later, you know, uh, when he was making uh, Serenade, there was a, you know, beautiful Spanish actress, and uh, that was... Sarah Montiel. Yeah, yeah. Sarita Montiel. Yeah. 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 story to this voice, the story of Damon Vincenti, who sang his songs for everybody to hear. But two women listened with their hearts, one of them a devil with the face of an angel. Her evil went deep. Oh, no, you are still afraid of the American woman. No, Anna. It is afternoon in the bull ring. A matador spreads his cape. A bull sees the cape and comes fast. His horns brush past. It is time for the sword, the matador, or the bull. Now is the moment of truth. And I, you know, she lived with us for a period of time, or we lived with her, um, in um, Coldwater Canyon. I think she was nice enough. I, I think it was harder for my sister, who was older, and Sarita was all about, you know, um, kind of extreme makeup and push-up bras and the, the whole thing, and my sister tried to emulate that, and I think it was a lot harder for her. The kind of curious thing about Sarita is that when they did get divorced, because she was Catholic and she was a big star in Spain, they had to get the marriage annulled so that, you know, she wouldn't, you know, be the wife of a divorced situation. There's an interview with her okay. from the 70s that okay. I found okay. online, and she speaks very, very lovingly of him. I'm sure. And she says something that I wonder if this resonates with you. She said, he taught me how to love. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. That's interesting. What, what do you, I, I, and I asked this just because it was based on a, a rather racy novel of its day, okay. God, God's oh, Little Acre. yes, God's Little Acre, great. I loved it. God's Little Acre. Now you can see every one of its world-renowned characters. 
Robert Ryan as Ty Ty. Aldo Ray as Will. Tina Louise as Griselda. Live every warm, earthy moment. Buddy Hackett as Pluto. Faye Spain as Darling Jill. <laughs> Share every lusty laugh. Well, first, the first thing I can tell you about it that I loved, which was that I remember when he discovered Buddy Hackett, because he came home and he was jubilant about this actor. He was just fit to be tied. He just, he said, oh, this guy, he's just too much. He's wonderful. He's, you know, he, he was just thrilled right. with having discovered him. And um, I, I certainly, I, I, at the time, we were living, um, we were living on Coldwater Canyon, and I would be with him only on the summer. So um, I know he was disappointed with the whoever that board was that said that you could have so much raciness in, yeah. you know whatever it was that they didn't allow certain scenes and that they you know he felt that they they didn't let the film be what it really was meant to be um and that was disappointing but i thought it was well he worked with bob ryan Bob Ryan, he had worked with a lot. One of the things I admired about him, is, uh, about my father, is that he used the same actors over and over again because he trusted them because they spoke the same language, you know. Um, and uh, I, I liked that film a lot because, again, of the characters. And it was a very hot film. Yeah. When his movies come on TCM, do you watch them? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Which are your favorites? Uh, see, I different ones are favorites for different reasons. You know, I mean, I, I I love the Furies. Here is drama as vast and spectacular as the sweeping ranges and towering crags of the lawless empire that spawned it, the Furies. And to film this greatest of all novels by Niven Bush, who wrote Duel in the Sun. Producer Hal Wallace has assembled a superlative cast of dramatic stars. Barbara Stanwyck, Wendell Corey, Walter Houston in his greatest role. You stop telling lies about me and I'll stop telling the truth about you. I've heard that one before. Now get. I killed your father in fair fight and I'd be pleased to do as much for you. Do you want me to beg? Do you want me on my knees to you for his life? I'd hang him anyway. It's me you should have hung. Take a good long look at me, T.C. You won't see me again until the day I take your world away from you. There was a period of time when I would see his films and I'd be looking for him. I'm trying to find, you know, where's daddy? Where's my daddy? And uh, he, it seemed that the women in the films were strong. And I liked that he put strong women uh, in, in the films. And um, so I'd say The Furies was one of my favorites, probably because I looked at it closely for Criterion and I really, as an adult, got into it. Uh, I think El Cid is overwhelmingly beautiful. Mm. Just, just real. And the, the music, uh, there's another tidbit about whoever the musician, the writer, the, the who composed it, the composer for it. I remember hearing my father say, uh, just make it great. Steal from anybody, but just make it great. <laughs> you know? 
And that, and, and I had to laugh when Tom Hanks on the Academy Award said, "Steal from everybody," you know, because you're basically learning from everybody. Sure. Yeah. You know. Else said the Furies. I know you mentioned to me before we spoke. You did the Criterion right. commentary. What what's what is special about that aside from the 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 portrait of strong women? It, it, why does that film speak to you? It's a, it's a terrific. I love movie. the look of it. Yeah, I love the look. I just like the the uh, you know it's a film noir western. Yeah, and I don't know, but I project that maybe. The reason why he then started focusing a lot on westerns was from that experience, because it seems like film noir, western. Okay, this is good. Western, western, western. Right. That's the transition. Yeah. 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 But then he was supposed to do Spartacus, and something went wrong, as I think it sometimes or sure. often did with Kirk Douglas. I, right. What do you remember about well, that? Well, my understanding is that Kirk, and this I did get from my father, was that Kirk Douglas wanted it to be all about a showcase for him, you know, as a gymnast, as, you know, a fighter and showing off his body and being able to, and 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 my father felt that the essence of the film was the story, not the gymnastics of it. And um, there was some other kind of thing, and I think this was Spartacus, that somewhere along the line, uh, my father, I think Peter Ustinov was in it, right? Yeah. Okay. Peter Ustinov and a couple of other major stars. Olivier. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And he, my father had asked them, each of them, why they wanted to be in the film. And apparently there had been different scripts written for each actor that had scenes in it that were compelling to the actor and the actor you know maybe didn't want to do the movie but wanted to you know nail this particular scene because it was so intriguing to him so that was there were just so much going on in Spartacus and um, you know basically uh, I think he was fired because Kirk Douglas couldn't, you know, wasn't getting the support that he wanted to do it his way. Mm-hmm. And he had the power at that time. They shot together, though. Are there scenes of his still in the movie? Yes. The, the, I think the first 20 minutes in the moody, movie are, uh, are my father's. Oh. Yeah. Among our people... We have a word for a warrior with the vision to be just and the courage to be merciful. We call such a man El Cid. And then, again, because Hollywood starts moving out of, you know, Hollywood, uh, he, he goes to Spain and works for this extraordinarily strange organization run by a, a, a great con man, Samuel Bronston, who did get these big epics made somehow. They had tons of money that somehow Bronston needed to get out of Spain to the United States. That was, there were some machinations about that because they built to scale the Roman Forum, to scale. That was it. I remember I was, uh, I, I met my father in, 
in Rome before any of the shooting was beginning and we went to the Roman Forum, what was left of it and everything. And then I guess a year later, I don't remember exactly, um, you know, I walked out to this huge um, plot of land that had the Roman Forum built to scale. Wow. So there was money and it was being spent hugely um but one of the things about that particular thing and i was there for it i just remember being kind of overwhelmed was they have the the scene of the triumphal entry into the into rome um with all the centurions and the warriors etc and because they built the form to scale it was vast and so they filled it with, you know, all of um, um, uh, uh, Franco's army, you know, dressed in, uh, and they used all of Franco's army in El Cid and in uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. So there was, you know, lots of stuff going on there. Um, anyway, so they, the, they had waited all day for the clouds to move, and then finally the clouds were moved, and, and then they... Uh, called action and the uh, lions and tigers and they uh, were you know marched in along with everybody else and uh, the the um, the centurions and everything were taking their gold corns and tossing it out to the to the various um, uh, um, plebeians and all of a sudden, all of the all of the you know extras rush to the side to pick up the gold coins, and the forum was empty. <laughs> you know, and you can imagine you go for this huge setup in the clouds and everybody and getting it all, and then, and that's that day, you know. So that's right. Yeah, I, it, and and those movies, Roman Empire and El Cid, are they're massive uh, undertakings. I think they killed my father, quite frankly, because it was it was such an undertaking, you know. And these were real people. This wasn't CGI. I mean, my resentment in seeing the Gladiator was their whole scenes that are stolen, but they're just CGI. Yeah. You know, no, this was all there. Yeah, there was no no effects to any of them. Right. So it sounds like he shot all of it himself. That yeah. he didn't have multiple units or. No, I, I know he had Yakima Konut. He used for some um, of the um, fight sequences, and 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 he loved him. He was you know very admiring of him and his ability and everything. But for the most part, yeah, he shot most of it. And that was with Robert Krasker, I think his name yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. Were right. you there for, for much of it? Um, I saw some of it. I saw some of it. I mean, I'd see... El Cid or, or both? Both of yeah. them. Both of them. Uh, the, the part of El Cid that um, was not the shooting, but the looking for locations. And, you know, and, and then again, here was the period of time when I was not feeling really safe or comfortable with my father because of my, you know, I just didn't know how to be with him. And so we would be driving around looking for these castles, which was amazing when I think of it in retrospect, and seeing these beautiful monasteries and, you know, wonderful, wonderful locations. And I would fall asleep in the back of the car because I just, you know, wasn't able to be there. 
Was there a reason beyond that's where the work was at the moment? Did, did, did he feel for some reason like moving on in life, disconnected from Hollywood? What, what made him want to go to, to Spain and, and have that whole four or five year adventure? I think, I think the job, what it must have been offered, what was offered to him. And I don't know the who's in that. And you know the job and the potential money, and that it was going to be oh well. Also, hey, there was Sarita, so Sarita had all the connections, and Sarita was um, you know had she wasn't happy about Franco, but she was able to use her celebrity with Franco, and I think so that there must have been that that when he got to Spain, he got to Spain in relationship originally with Sarita, and then where all the other parts and pieces came, I don't know. Mm. But Bronston was obviously there, and Bronston was obviously, um, you know, the money source. The, uh, in, the, in the Nicholas Ray's biography, they, they talk about how the money continually almost ran out, and yes. then they would show up again. Right. Do you right. remember the shooting? Well, I, getting... do, I do remember my father not getting paid, you know, and he would not get paid, and then they'd give him a Mercedes, and then he'd not get paid, and they'd give him something else, yeah. But he never quit? No, no. How do you feel, what, why do you say you feel those movies killed him? Uh, the, the energy that it took... The, the, the humongous amount of energy. I mean, you look at any one shot in any one of those movies and just the, the, just the putting together of it. I mean, it was an army. He was running an army. And it was literally Franco's army in many cases. Sure. Um, and I think that the energy that it took, um, I also remember his, his um, last wife, Anna, saying that she uh, she could hear in his breathing. He had had a heart attack well before this. He had an original heart attack. And he no longer smoked. But, you know, I just think she was the one who said to me, she thought that the, the, that the second movie, that the fall of the Roman Empire, and then when it didn't go well or wasn't received well, uh, was a was a real hit. The fall of the Roman Empire. Not just two or three, but 14 stunning recreations of the empire to which all roads lead. Rome's mighty fortresses and encampments on the northern Danubian border. The great forum of ancient Rome, completely recreated so that its original beauty may startle the modern world. The temple of Jupiter, where the Caesars became gods. The palestra, where an army of gladiators was trained. The vast chamber of the Roman Senate, where an empire's future hung in the balance. The mighty assembly of all the armies of the Roman Empire, from Britannia to Africa, from Spain to the gates of Persia, to pay homage to the greatest Caesar of them all. The battle between the death-sworn Persian hordes and the human wall of Romans. The duel of the chariots, a breathtaking clash between fearless men, the most exciting thrill the camera has ever captured. Uh, I was in college when he was. Uh, they were they were doing a sneak preview of uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, and um, there's a phenomenal sequence where 
um, there's a chariot race down a mountain, you know, and it goes on and 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 on until people started laughing. And I'm sitting next to my father and he said, why are they laughing? You know, and, and you know, I just, you know, maybe it needs some editing. You know, Did they edit? I'm trying to remember I, the scene. I don't then. know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's it's a brilliant scene. Yeah. I mean, it must have been crazy to, I mean, I think they were trying to outdo Ben-Hur. The chariot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was, you know, and they, they go over a bridge and the wheels are over the edge of the bridge and, you know, and, and we've got... <laughs> you know, horses and chariots. This is making me want to see one of those oh, you have again. To. Yeah, you it, have it's to. funny because I remember El Cid cut up and squashed in the TV when I was growing up. Sure. And then Scorsese right. re uh, uh, fixed it up and yeah. paid for a major restoration. Right. And, and then I saw it at the Cinerama Dome. I think oh, this yes. is like around 1992 okay. or three or something. Okay. And it was wonderful because you got the sense of how really big and and fat and extreme the whole experience including intermission you know yes, it's like right, this is such right. an old school wonderful right. you know and and i uh i remember walking out in the lobby at the intermission and get more popcorn or whatever and the guy like at the door the you know literally looked at me and he said he said they don't make them like that anymore right <laughs> yeah it's such a cliche but yes, i was like this absolutely, absolutely fits true. yeah, th- yeah that's just absolutely a, true because very few people are exalted now when else said this was a legend. He could be exalted. So then even though he rode to victory on a, uh, when he was dead, strapped to his horse, there was great exaltation because this is, this is with the romantic, the great romantic kind of uh, chronicle legends that were written in those days. Yeah. And, and it's not just, of course they make huge movies, of course they make, you know, but I think like you said, because there, it's clear there's no effects. It, yeah. the, the the human uh, you know uh, effort behind it is so is so huge. Did he take criticism or? Um, I I'd say yes and no. I think yes. Uh, he the way he dealt with it was he would ignore it, and um, he loved to play games and he hated to lose. What did he play? Oh, everything. You know, he played he played cards, he played chess, he played checkers, he played um we on Saturdays would play croquet outside, you know. And and, and I just remember a certain joy in being able to knock the ball, somebody else's ball off of the court or whatever. Um but he he didn't like to lose. He was not a good Good loser. Mm. Did he gamble? Yes, and he was bad at that. He was bad at that. And he um, was something I read just recently because, you know, you had me, you know, thinking. And so I would go, uh, you know, and research. And, um, um, you know, when he was doing apparently a dandy in aspect, he was very, very low on personal funds. You know, yeah. No, he was... Gambling, I think, was his one vice. He didn't like to drink. He didn't, you know, none of that. But gambling hooked him. Hmm. We would, we'd, my sister and I would go with him uh, after after Christmas. He would go to Las Vegas and take us 
and my mother was left home to undo the tree and to do whatever. And um, so I have vivid memories of Las Vegas and feeling really anxious, not knowing You knew why. there was something going yeah, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 and feeling just really anxious. Oh, wow. When he, after hears of Telemark, he went to make a dandy in Aspect. Right. And he died during its making. Right. Um, can you tell me any memory you have about that event? I think it had been a long day. He had been working. I got this information from Anna. Um, and they came home and they had a lovely dinner and they, you know, made love after dinner. And in the midst of it, he died. Which, in my father's estimation, I think would be the perfect way to go. Right. You know? Is there, is there something that occurs to you when you think of him? Is there a moment in your life with him? Is there some memory that you hang on to more specifically? That, uh, do, you, do you remember him? As... I, they're, just, they're, they're all scattered yeah. memories. They're, they're just, you know, it's, it's like the laughter one. It's, and they are in two different segments. There's my early childhood and then from 12, you know, from 12 to 24. Um, no, I think, you know, you're always longing to connect. I know when I, when I went, when I met him once, uh, I guess this was in Italy, and we were on a plane together, and he said, you have a beautiful profile, and somehow that felt good you know I mean that was you know because you're always wanting your father's attention if you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn I'd love to hear from you you can email me at movies till dawn podcast at gmail.com you can access these conversations at iTunes Spotify TuneIn Stitcher Google Podcasts SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, MoviesTillDawnPodcast.com. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at MoviesTillDawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research.